Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Not all convictions come with a sense of relief. Sometimes when a verdict is read, it leaves many wondering if they put away a dangerous man or an innocent one who just wasn't able to plead his case. On July 6, 1980, a man was arrested for a vicious armed robbery gone wrong. But, despite a conviction and execution, many aren't certain he was responsible for taking three human lives. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On July 5, 1980, at about 9.45 p.m., Bob Bell's Market on 12th Avenue South in Nashville, Tennessee, was robbed by an armed gunman. When the assailant walked into the store, Bob Bell Jr., his son Bobby, who was just 12 years old, and Lewis Smith, a friend of Bob's, were inside the store with young Bobby helping at the cash register and the two adults working together repairing a boat motor. As the man leveled his weapon at Bob, he ordered the two men to join Bobby behind the register. As they did so, a woman and her two children entered the market. Thankfully, the gunman seemed to have no desire to involve a woman and children in his crime, concealed his weapon, and told the men to act naturally. As soon as the trio left, the gun was pulled back out, and the man demanded that Bobby fill a bag with the money inside of the register, while he searched Bob Bell and Lewis Smith for any cash and valuables. Everything seemed to be going according to plan, but when the door of the market swung open once again... All hell broke loose. Charles House entered the store only to be yelled at and told to leave, which he did willingly. But something about this next interruption sent the gunman off. And immediately after Charles left the store, the trigger was pulled and Bobby Bell fell to the ground. Lewis immediately threw himself on top of the preteen boy to try and protect him from any more harm and was himself shot in the throat and in the hand. 
The killer then walked towards Bob Bell, pointed his gun at his head, and pulled the trigger. As the gunman ran from the market, he assumed all three men were lying dead inside. In reality, Bobby was the only casualty, with Lewis remarkably surviving his injuries and Bob throwing his hands up at the last minute, his wrist blocking the bullet meant for his head. Bob quickly grabbed the store's shotgun and ran around the counter prepared to chase the man who just killed his son. As he did, he heard two more shots just outside of the market. As he pressed on and gave chase, he passed a cab just outside of the entrance. Both the driver and the passenger had been shot to death and were still in their seats. They were later identified as 41-year-old James Moore, an Army veteran who had just started at the Supreme Cab Company, and his passenger, 35-year-old Charles House, the man who was forced out of the store just seconds before the shooting began. Bob Bell stood there helplessly as the man got away, full well knowing that, even if he had the chance, his injuries were too severe to actually pull the trigger. But unfortunately for the killer, Bob Bell survived those injuries and had a good idea of who his son's killer was. Past customer and cook at Vanderbilt Hospital, 23-year-old Cecil C. Johnson Jr. Though Bob didn't know the customer's name, he gave enough information and Cecil was arrested on July 6, 1980, after his own father turned him into police. When brought to trial, both Bob Bell and Lewis Smith identified Cecil as the gunman and killer as did Deborah Smith, the woman who entered the store mid-robbery, and a man named Victor Davis, a friend of Cecil's who spent most of the day with him on July 5th. But something about Victor's statements seemed off. While in court, his statements were used to prove Cecil's guilt. But during the initial investigation, he made a number of statements that actually provided Cecil with an alibi for the night of the murders. He said that he and Cecil spent the day together from 3.30 on on July 5th until approximately midnight the next day and had not at any point visited Bell's Market. But a week before the trial started, Victor was arrested on an unrelated charge of carrying a deadly weapon and public intoxication. And it was at this point that he started making incriminating statements against Cecil Johnson. He was, of course, offered immunity from the prosecution and told the courts that he and Cecil left Franklin, Tennessee at about 9.25 p.m. on July 5th and arrived on 12th South shortly before 10 p.m. Then Cecil left Victor in the car and told him he was going to go rob the market and, quote, try not to leave any witnesses. He came back five minutes later with a sack full of money saying, I didn't mean to shoot that boy. Of course, Cecil denied being in the market at all. After deliberation, the jury convicted Cecil Johnson of three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of assault with intent to commit murder, and two counts of armed robbery. He was sentenced to death for the first-degree murder charges and life for all of the others. A conviction based solely on the testimonies of witnesses and no physical evidence. Cecil Johnson, like many in his situation, went to prison swearing that he was an innocent man. A few weeks after his arrest, did an interview with the National Banner in which he said he felt as though he was in a bad dream, that he met the police after hearing that they were looking for him and told them that they had the wrong guy as he'd been in Franklin with friends on the day of the murders, that he expected his friend Victor to help exonerate him, not turn around weeks later and implicate him. He was just a kid with no serious criminal history and was now facing a potential execution. So, his attorneys worked towards an appeal based on the fact that their prime witness had flipped his testimony so drastically, 
and the fact that, according to the police reports, Lewis Smith never got a good look at the killer, a report that was withheld from the defense attorneys until 1992. Apparently, he even failed to pull Cecil from a lineup and was only able to identify him after he saw a news story about his arrest. But the federal appeals court ruled that this mistake didn't affect the outcome of the trial, and Cecil remained behind bars. Years after the interrogation of Victor Davis, Sterling Gray, the DA who led the interrogation and was later appointed to a judgeship, was indicted on allegations that he took bribes from defendants in exchange for lighter sentences. He later killed his wife and himself after the charges were made public. Given this bit of information, Victor's drastically different testimony a week before the trial started, complete lack of physical evidence, and the withheld police reports, maybe it was possible that Cecil was an innocent man. Unfortunately, while serving time behind bars, Cecil was one of two men involved in the 1985 beating death of fellow prisoner Laron Williams. He was convicted in 1987. Clemency attempts continued throughout his imprisonment, and lawyers argued that his upbringing and race played a role in not just his criminal behavior, but how he was treated during the investigation and trial. But none of their fights seemed to change the minds of the courts. Right before his execution date, after three decades on death row, Nashville's federal court granted a temporary restraining order, stopping Cecil Johnson's autopsy pending further review by the court. At the hearing, Cecil claimed that an autopsy after his execution would be against his religious belief, quote, amount to desecration. It was denied and, an hour later, on December 2, 2009, Cecil Johnson was executed by lethal injection at a Nashville, Tennessee prison, potentially as an innocent man. His final words were to his family, You all stay safe and keep trusting in the Lord. Right before his execution, the 53-year-old was sent a letter by his 29-year-old son, James Johnson, who was serving a 23-year sentence for aggravated assault and aggravated robbery at a different prison. He forgave his father for not being there during his childhood and assured him that he was not the reason James was in prison. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 7th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.